A um, couple things before we get going. One is um, hopefully have a notepad with you this morning or find some piece of paper so you can write some things down. I think you're going to see some insights perhaps this morning that you'll be able to apply to your life. Um, one of the things that we talk about here at New Hope is looking for truth handles, how we can take truth that you hear in the midst of the teachings and put a handle on it and carry it out of the building with you, things that you can apply to your own personal life. So I'm going to ask you to be looking for some of those truth handles this morning, and we'll revisit that um, in the, later in, towards the end of the service when we come back, but looking for some intentional things that will apply to your life. Um, b- before we get into the teaching, um, one housekeeping item. This last week, uh, the leadership team here at the church decided to establish a building fund because we've had individuals approaching us about being able to give specifically towards uh, a new building. Um, you know, if you were here a few weeks ago, we explained that we were exploring the L&L building down in the corner of Hazlitt and Marsh. And the Exploratory Committee continues to do its work in exploring the options, what's available to us. But in either case, realizing that God is continuing to grow and grow and grow our body, we know that there's something coming in the future, whether it's the L&L or it's something else, we don't know. But at this point, we've established a building fund. And so there's some seed money that some individuals have given towards that already. And there's $35,000 to start that account out with. So if you would like to give towards the building fund, you can do that on your envelope uh, when you do your giving up and beyond your regular giving. Um, there's this category that says building improvement fund on the envelope right now. You could just write in there building fund if that's what you wanted to give towards. So one detail there. And another detail, um, this afternoon, right after this service, Debbie, uh, for the children's ministry, is going to be hosting an event downstairs. Um, it's kind of a, like a, a workshop, an experimental workshop for children. If you're interested in serving in the children's ministry, it'd be great for you to go down for like five or ten minutes and just observe some of the things that they're doing. One of the things Debbie has told me this week is she's really in need of children's workers. You may be getting those emails each week that come out, and maybe you ignore them and just let them go on by. But if, if you have um, a spiritual gifting in your life, that God has given you that ability to work with younger people, that skill set of taking biblical truth and matching it with working with children would be something for you to consider seriously. If maybe you come to the 11 and you could come to the 9 o'clock and serve, or maybe you go to Saturday night and you could come to the 11 o'clock and serve. Just be thinking about that this week. But an opportunity to kind of look into that is before you right after this morning's service. So give that some thought. Okay, I'm going to put up on the screen Mark 14. And where we left off at last week is this concept of Jesus ascending to the right hand of God, where we were at in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. And Jesus, uh, we're told literally, after he made a purification of sins, ascended to the right hand of the Father, and is sitting at the right hand of God. But if we look at Mark 14, 62, we see Jesus saying virtually the same thing while he was alive on planet Earth. Now this is the setting. Jesus has been arrested. He's standing before the Supreme Court, known as the Sanhedrin. The, the chief priest, or what might be considered the high council, literally says to him, tell us the truth, I implore you, are you the Christ, the Son of the living God? And Jesus' response is, I am, and you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power, which you know set them off ballistically. Um, They ripped their clothes, and that's when the high priest said, okay, away with him, crucify him. What further need do we have to hear from him? Because this is a claim that he is the Messiah. 
Now, with that thought in mind, with where we left off at in Hebrews 1.3 and what Jesus said there, that should tell us there's something incredible coming in the remainder of chapter 1 as we move into this study this morning. That image of Jesus sitting at the right hand of power is going to reappear in a few moments. So keep that one kind of in the forefront of your mind as we move forward. Together, what we're going to do is we're going to look below the surface and press into this truth that Jesus is better. If you weren't here last week, this is the groundwork we established. The, the letter of Hebrews is being written to a group of people who are Jewish by their heritage, but they become Christian, Christ followers, and they're being persecuted. They live at the time of Nero. Nero Caesar is throwing them in jail. He's beheading them. He's using them for nightlights. He's doing all kinds of ungodly things. And that's this group of individuals who need to be encouraged that Jesus is better than going back to all the former things that they know and running away. So we find Jesus being superior through the book of Hebrews. Before we move into the text, I'm going to ask you to pray with me, and here's why. Not just that we ask for God's presence, but the book of Hebrews has the capacity to cause tension in your life, especially if you're a Christ follower and you think you have things all figured out. I'm here to tell you the book of Hebrews will cause you to recoil a little bit, and chapter 1 is part of that. So I'm going to pray that we could set aside our preconceived ideas, things that we think we already know, unless you've arrived at it through biblical truth, and you come to the conclusion where maybe some of the things I know I learned from my aunt, or I learned from my grandfather, or I learned from a friend, and maybe some of that wasn't correct. I'm going to ask you to kind of set some of that aside and just let the Bible speak to you this morning. So would you pray with me about that? Let's do that, and then we'll jump into the text. Father, I'm the first to recognize that there's, there's tension with this text. And it, it may say some things that cause me to be uncomfortable, and I have to believe that's the case for others who fill this auditorium. So we ask, first of all, that your Holy Spirit would superintend over us and that as you brood over this auditorium that through the spirit you would give us a capacity to see what you want us to see in the way that you want us to see it that we could set aside our own ideas and that we would come to this with a fresh clean perspective and as a result of it we'll take truth with us when we leave today we would ask this in jesus mighty name amen As amazing as a creation as you are, and as I am, um, as God's highest creation on planet Earth, and we are amazing. Humans are, I mean, we have opposing thumbs. How cool is that? We can do things that the rest of the created world can't do. God created us with a special capacity higher than anything else in his creation on Earth. And yet, we're not his highest creation. There are beings that are created higher than us. They're very, very powerful. And they're very, very intelligent, and they're extremely old, and they're known as angels. And what we're going to get into this morning is angelology when we get into verse 4, because this writer to the Hebrews understands the framework of where these people are coming from, whom he's writing to, that there's some preconceived ideas, and they have some misunderstandings. Uh, Hebrews 13.2 tells us we're supposed to be very, very careful, because some people have entertained angels without even knowing and we'll get into that later as we study further into the, into the book of Hebrews. But that tells us that angels can appear in human form. They're not 
flesh and bone. They don't always appear as human, but they can appear that way. And so the Bible says some people have even entertained them and not even known it that they were entertaining them. Uh, Speaking of an angel at the resurrection of Jesus, we're told that in their heavenly form, they're dazzlingly brilliant. As a matter of fact, look with me on the screen at this one. Matthew 28.4 says this, His appearance, speaking of an angel, was like lightning, and his garment as white as snow, and the guards shook for fear of him. Dazzling, brilliant, awe-inspiring. We're also told that angels are highly intelligent. Luke 15.10 says that they have emotion. They rejoice when a sinner comes to Jesus. So they have the capacity for the full range of emotion. We're also told that they speak to men, and they can communicate with us and that they have relationships. The Old Testament says that angels have each other's backs. We, we see evidence in Scripture where one angel came to the rescue of another angel when he was fighting a fallen angel, a demon. And so we understand they're relationship-oriented. Jesus said they do not marry. Matter of fact, we're told that they don't procreate also. That's what makes us unique from the angels. We can procreate. That means that the angels that were spoken into existence when they were created never increased in number. There's no more today than there was when they were originally spoken into existence. Even though some of them fell, they did not die. They didn't go out of existence. So they do not marry. They're unable to procreate. But it appears that they were all created at the same time. According to Colossians 1.16, we're told this, For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible. It goes on to talk about principalities, powers, dominion. That's code language for angels. So God put them in power with certain rankings, but they're all created at the same time. The Bible also tells us that a third of them rebelled against Him and that there was war in heaven. That's kind of weird, isn't it? I mean, just to think of war in heaven. But the Bible says there was war in heaven. And that as a result of that, Lucifer took a third of heaven with him. We're told this in Revelation 12.4. He swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. But even after some of them fell and some of them rebelled against God, the number of holy angels, those who were unfallen, is countless according to Scripture. As a matter of fact, we're told this in Revelation 5.11. And the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. John's looking at the scene in heaven. He said, I can't even count them. There's so many of them. Now we understand that angels are highly organized, divided into ranks. There's cherubim, there's seraphim, there's the messenger angels. Some appear with wings, some have no wings. And then we're told there's some that have names. Gabriel, Michael, Lucifer. According to the Bible, they move with incredible speed. Now I tell you all of this because the Old Testament Hebrews those whom this writer of Hebrews is writing to, the Jewish thinking people in the first century, had these ideas also that you've just heard. But mingled with it, they had some misconceptions about what the angels were. Now, correctly, they believed them to be the highest created order of God's creation. And in truth, they do serve God. They're in the throne room of God. But they also believed that angels served as God's senate. And that comes from Genesis chapter 1. They believe that God wouldn't do anything without consulting his angels first. Where does that come from? Well, in Genesis chapter 1, God says, let us make man in our image. And among the Jewish people, they believed, well, what do we do with that? Because God is one. 
He tells us He's one, yet He says, our, what, what do we do with that? So they believed that the angels were the hour and that God was consulting the angels. See, they couldn't think in terms of first person, second person, third, third person of the Trinity. So that was kind of a stumbling block for them. Here's one thing they did understand correctly. They understood that the Old Testament, the Levitical law, had been given to them through angels as a mediator. In other words, when Moses wrote down Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the things that he wrote down, he couldn't have known on his own without God showing him. And we're told according to Scripture that the angels delivered the information directly to him. You see that surface again in the New Testament. When Stephen is about to be killed, he's going to be stoned for teaching about Jesus when he's very near his death and the point where they're picking up rocks to kill him, he begins talking to them about how they got the information that they have in the Old Testament. Look with me on the screen at this, Acts 7.53. This is Stephen speaking. And they killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become, you who received the law as ordained by angels. See, he understands. That's first century thinking. The, the people that he's talking to are thinking, we've got what we have because of the angels. So in the Jewish mind, if you're the recipient of this Hebrews letter, the angels are extremely exalted. You, you value them very, very highly. So this writer has a challenge before him. He has to show that Jesus is better than the angels, that they can't worship angels, which some of them did. So in effect, here's what the writer's saying. Open up your Bibles. And I'm going to show you according to your Bible, meaning the Old Testament, that Jesus is better. So go with me to verse 4. This is Hebrews chapter 1, and this is where he picks up at. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Uh, what's the mindset here? We just finished verse 3. He sat down at the right hand of God after making a purification for sins. He continues the thought, having become as much superior... So here's what's in thought. He put away sin. He sat down. He's at the right hand of God, and he's become much better. Now, this is where cults struggle. You might have had people come to your door and say, well, Jesus can't be the Son of God because it says he became superior to the angels. What do I do with that? Well, first of all, they're looking at the King James Version, and they've got a misunderstanding of the meaning there. It's not poieo, meaning create. He didn't become through creation, but to become means something different. I want to explain to you. This is going to feel a little bit academic, but just bear with me as I help you understand that. First of all, we have this premise. Jesus has always existed. Okay, right? You good with that? Jesus has always existed, but he became better than the angels. How did that happen? In his exaltation, he became better than the angels. Now that causes you to say, wait, if he became better, that means he must have been lower at one time. This is one of those points where you're going to have to recoil for a moment, okay? That's correct. Jesus was lower than the angels at one time. Now, before you yell heresy at me, I want to show you how you understand that, okay? So look with me on the screen so that you understand this at Hebrews 2.9. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely, Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. So made for a little while. So that means before he was exalted and then made lower than the angels. 
and then exalted again. Do you see the pattern going on here? So this writer is building a case for them. So as the son, he became lower than the angels when he emptied himself. According to Scripture, he emptied himself of all his godly privilege and became obedient unto death. But because of this obedience, meaning the finished work, he was exalted again above the angels. And so therefore, as a result of that, in verse 4, he's inherited a more excellent name, meaning there's some character implied there. It's not just that he inherited a name, it's a more excellent name. That's what the writer wants us to understand. There's something significant about the name. Let me show you this quote from Dr. Leon Morris on the screen. It might help you a little bit. In antiquity, the name meant much more than it does today. We use a name as little more than a distinguishing mark or label to differentiate one person from other people. But in the world of the New Testament, the name concisely sums up all that a person is. So Jesus is better because he has a title that is more excellent than the angels, and he has a better title, a more excellent name. What is that name? Now here's where I need to slow down just a little bit. I don't want to feel like we're swimming in peanut butter, but but I want you to just digest verse 5 with me so we understand this concept of the Son. So verse 5 says this, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my Son, Today I have begotten you, or again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. No angel, according to the Bible, is ever going to hear God say, I will be a father to him. It's just not going to happen. So he's revisiting here a concept, and it's a concept of the incarnation. So let me help you with when God said, you are my son. First time we see it is at the baptism of Jesus. He's here on earth, he's in incarnate form, he willingly has himself baptized as an example to everyone else, and the heavens open up, and people hear God say from heaven, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Second time, Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus goes up on a mountainside, he's got Peter with him, he's got John with him, and the heavens open up, and they hear an audible voice say, this is my son Listen to him. So here we say, God is saying, he's my son. It's very remarkable that we pay attention to this. The angels have always been messengers. They've always been servants of God. Jesus became a servant. He came as a servant. So as the supreme servant, he assumes this title of God's son. Therefore, he's taking on a more excellent name. Now, I told you that what the writer of Hebrews is doing is quoting the Old Testament over and over and over again. Here's a couple of examples of that. First one comes from Psalm 2.7. To which of the angels did God ever say, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee? It's quoting the Old Testament. Here's another one. 2 Samuel 7.14. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. Here's what's remarkable about that. Do you notice that that's future tense? He's looking forward. The Old Testament writer is saying there's a time coming when he's going to become the son. He will be. He shall be. His sonness was anticipated in the Old Testament, but he didn't receive this title until he was begotten in time. That's why the writer says, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. See, today is a time element word. It's not an eternal word. 
There's a time date stamp with it. So today he has begotten. So here's what I want you to understand. The term son has only to do with Jesus in his incarnation. It's God's way of helping you to understand the relationship between the first and the second of the Trinity and how they work together. Maybe you've always struggled with that. How does that work? Jesus is God the Son. Well, this is how it works. He took on the title when he came to earth. So when the Bible speaks of Jesus in eternity, you'll notice this when you read the New Testament, it never talks about Jesus as the Son. It talks about him as God. If you look down in verse 8 of Hebrews chapter 1, you see God is calling Jesus God. God saying to God, or my Lord saying to my Lord. So when talking about his earthly presence, he's called the Son. He's always been God. He became the Son, so that's his incarnation title. Now, here's a truth handle for you. You might be saying, well, it's interesting theology, Mark, but why is that significant to me? When someone comes to your door, hi, I would like to share my watchtower with you and explain to you my position of how Jesus is not the Son of God. He is a created being. And I've had people come to my door both Jehovah's Witness and Mormons, and say Jesus is not the Son. He's, he's not God. He's a created being. You can take them to this passage and say, Jesus became the Son. He's always been God. He was not a created being. Because their position is, Jesus is not God. He's an inferior being. He's a created being. So this concept of sonship should really help you to understand the humiliation of Jesus. When Scripture says he was humiliated for my sake, not just death on the cross, but because he was God and he lowered himself to become the Son in order to die for me, for you, for our sins. Here's one last way for you to see this, and then we'll move on. I don't know if you've ever noticed this before at Christmas time but you see this concept in the virgin birth. You remember Mary having the conversation with the angel, and, and the angel came to her and said, you're going to have a child, and Mary said, wait, what? How, I'm a virgin. How am I going to have a child? Look at the angel's response. The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason, the Holy Spirit, or the Holy Child, will be called the Son of God. See, it's a future thing. It's a year before his birth. He's not yet the Son of God. He's going to be called the Son of God. So church, he became the Son for you. He became the Son, set aside his position, humbling himself, emptying himself. Now, we would agree angels are excellent. I mean, when you see guards collapsing and fainting because of their appearance, you'd say, awesome, excellent. But the Bible says, Jesus got a more excellent name than the angels, more excellent than Gabriel, more excellent than Michael. So he must have the most excellent name of all, which is the Son. So move forward with me into verse 6 because it begins to talk about how they view him, how the angels view him. It continues from an Old Testament argument. Verse 6 says this, And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Now here's where cults really struggle. Jesus being called the firstborn. And maybe you've struggled with that. You've looked at it before and said, how, how is Jesus the firstborn? That, that makes it look like he's born, he's created. Especially when we come to Colossians 1.15. And it says this, 
He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation. Well, when you understand what firstborn is, the light bulbs are all going to go off for you. The word is protokos, and I'm sorry I didn't get it in your notes this morning, but you will see it on the screen, and you can perhaps write it down in your notes next to the other Greek words that you have, because this is really significant. Firstborn has nothing to do with time. It's not a chronological title. It's a title of honor, meaning the chief one. Protokos, meaning the one who came before the others, Chief one is something that is a position title, and it was always used of the son who would inherit the father's possessions. You see a great description of it when you see Jacob talking to his oldest son, Reuben, in the Old Testament. I'll, I'll show you this one. Genesis 49.3. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. What comes out of that? Might. Character, dignity, power, strength. So when you think protokos, think character, position. John MacArthur says it this way. It's not a time word. It's a right to rule word, an authority word. So just get this in your mind. Even though Jesus has been made lower than the angels for a little while, the angels are commanded to worship him. So this Hebrew writers is quoting the Old Testament again, Psalm 97, 7, and let all the angels of God worship him. Now to move forward, we have to agree on something. We would have to agree that it is a premise, that it is a violation of God's most basic laws to worship anything other than God. Would you agree on that? All right. God says, you will have no other gods before me. I am a jealous God. You will worship no other God. So what we have here is the most basic law of God. And he, we're being told we're not to worship anything but God. But if God himself says that angels are to worship the Son as God, he must be God. Now the angels have worshipped him throughout all eternity prior to the incarnation. But now he becomes the Son and they're told to worship him as well. So the command in this text is decisive, church. And it's very important for us to get this. The premise is God is a jealous God. He will have no other gods before him. And he claims worship as his and his alone, and he requires it to be given to the Son. Would he do this if the Son was not worthy? Participatory. Would he? I mean, he just wouldn't do it, would he? Would he, contrary to his own command, give his glory to another? He's not going to do it. So don't miss this. To worship King Jesus is the highest act of obedience to the Father because the Father commands it. Jesus knew this. He understood this. John 5.22, he said this. He has given all judgment to the Son so that all will honor the Son. How? Even as they honor the Father. Wow, powerful. So Charles Simeon, one of those old dead theologians I told you I was going to share with you, way back in 1827, he said this, he swears that all, meaning God, he swears that all at the peril of their souls shall bow to Jesus. And so far from thinking himself dishonored by it, he expressly requires it. So the Father himself commands not you only, but also that angels will worship him. Now, when you understand that and you attach the word again to it, 
In verse 6, it says, and when he again brings the protokos into the world, you have to step back if you didn't believe in the second coming of Jesus. Because when you see this and we're told, he already brought him once at the incarnation. When the second person of the Trinity became God the Son, and he was made for a little while lower than the angels, and then he was exalted again to the right hand of the power of God. But here we're told, and when he again brings the protokos into the world another time, you would have to say, when is this again? What, what do you think, church? Second coming? Yeah. You, you're getting it. You understand. That's why this feels a little bit academic, but you understand the power in this. The second coming. God already brought him once. He's bringing him again in blazing glory. And when he's revealed in his full glory, Jesus said, every eye will see me, not just mankind, but the angels. And so as a result, the angels of God worship him. What kind of worship do you think that's going to look like, church? Do you think they're going to sit on their hands? Yay, Jesus. Or is it going to look more like what I saw last night? I'm watching the game at the Breslin Center. I know it causes you some pain. I understand that. But I watched worship taking place because, you know, that, that last minute and a half that took 25 minutes to play, okay, in the midst of that game, I saw worship because there was a comeback taking place. If you're a Spartan fan, you were watching it and saying, wow, look at this, they're on a roll, they're coming back, yes! Worship all over the Breslin Center because what we do is when we really like something and we're enthusiastic, our kids do great at a soccer game or our favorite team, our quarterback scores. Hands are in the air. We're praising and worshiping. What do you think it's going to look like when the angels of God see the protocos return in blazing glory and every eye will see him? I think that's really going to be worship. Isaiah chapter 6 says that when he saw God on his throne, he heard the angels say something. He heard them say, holy, 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 because that's the highest word they could possibly come up with in the tongue of angels. They're praising God in the highest form they know. Holy, holy, holy. And I'm thinking, because this is like the seventh inning in our teaching, we're going to do a seventh inning stretch. So here's what I'm going to do. Michael's going to come up, and he's going to do holy, holy, holy. We're almost done this morning, but we need to participate in worship at this point. So how about if you stand right here? And let's sing to the one who's worthy of that praise.
stop right there, right? But it's Hebrews, so just give me a couple more verses, okay? Because if you think what you've seen here is amazing, wait till this last closing part. When we see Jesus again, King of kings, Lord of lords, in his majesty, we're told that these angels that he's created will be accompanying him. So this is what verse 7 is talking about. It says, of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Now, this word makes means poieo. It's literally the word create. So here's what sets Jesus apart from the angels. He creates. They were created. Angels, he says, he makes angels his winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Kind of a confusing verse. Except if you understood the, the word make, it is actually the word poieo, which means to create. So he creates angels, his winds. Well, why winds? Well, winds is the, the biblical description for an angel. Look, look with me on the screen at Warren Wiersbe's quote. It says this, In the Hebrew and the Greek, for spirit are translated wind. Angels are created spirits, wind. They have no physical bodies, though they can assume human form. So he makes them. They belong to him. They're his ministers sent out for his service. He created them. But go on with me to verse 8. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, speaking of Jesus, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions." So angels, just so you're really clear, they stand before the throne. They are his ministers. They serve him. They do not sit at the throne. They want their own throne according to what we see because of what Lucifer did. He wanted his own throne. He wanted to exalt himself as God. He wanted to rule and be a sitting ruler. And for that, he was thrown out of heaven. Those are the fallen angels. But the holy angels surround the throne, and they worship God. So we're told in verse 8, of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, and he doesn't say the Son, O God, is forever. He's quoting the Old Testament again. This is, in your Bible, one of the clearest, most powerful, irrefutable proofs that Jesus is God. This is clarity on a colossal scale. God himself is saying he's God. He's speaking of Jesus. So God the Father acknowledges God the Son. That's why Jesus said in John 10.30, I and the Father are one. We're the same. Now we're told he's got a scepter. Now, when you think of scepter, you need to think of this Greek word. It's the word rabdos, and it means a baton or a cudgel. Now, when you think of cudgel, it doesn't sound very friendly because you would think of somebody getting whacked over the head. Well, a cudgel is actually the concept that came from bad, evil, wicked kings. They would have a baton in their hand, and if a wicked servant came before them and they didn't care for that servant, boom, they bam them with their scepter. What does God say about God's scepter. God the Son's scepter is a scepter of righteousness. See, a king was known by three things. He was known by his authority. He was known by the scope of his power and the type of ruler that he was. Well, this ruler is known by the fact that he is not only one who acts in righteousness, he loves righteousness. That's a king you want to follow, isn't it? Isn't that a king that's easy to follow? This is one that loves righteousness. You'd love to have a world leader like that. 
Verse 10, this is what it begins to wrap up with now. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Speaking of Jesus again. So we got superior existence because he's quoting Psalms 102 now. He's saying Jesus is better because he exists eternally. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word. That's why John 1.1 starts out that way. See, Jesus is better because he's always existed. So if Jesus was in the beginning to create, follow me on this, if he was in the beginning to create, that means he existed before the beginning, right? So therefore, he's without beginning. He has no beginning. He's always existed. And we're told in verse 10 that everything that's on earth is the work of his hands. What happens to these things on earth? Go with me to verse 11. It says, they will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. Now, here's another truth handle. One of these things you can take out the building with you today. Jesus began the universe. Everything, the foundations of all are the works of his hand, and he will finish it. The final transformation of all things. The present creation that we see today, everything that's going on in our universe around us will one day cease to exist. But according to this passage, through it all, even though our world will melt with an intense heat, Jesus will never change. Nothing about him ever changes. So this is what we're told in Scripture, 2 Peter 3.10. It says that the elements will be destroyed with an intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Well, that complements the book of Revelation because as John was working forward in time, John saw this, John, uh, Revelation 6.14, and the sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up and every mountain and every island were moved out of their place. So there's a point in time coming in the future when even the sky will be destroyed. We're told that according to Scripture, there will be a tectonic shift in the crustal layer of the earth, the world will literally break apart. Now, I'm not here to be a doomsdayer or to be a naysayer, but this is biblical truth. Everything that we see in creation will be destroyed, but Jesus never changes. And he's going to bring a new heaven and a new earth. You want to know more about that? Go online and look at the study we did in the book of Revelation. It'll take you a whole year to get through it. But there's an understanding there that Jesus never changes. That's what's coming out of this. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 13.8. That's what the writer wanted them to understand. Even though the Romans are killing you, even though they're throwing you in prison, even though you're losing your head, Jesus never changes. He will be with you and he will take you into eternity. So he wraps up with this in verse 13. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? That's talking about guardian angels, but we'll get into that in just a moment. Preparing the enemies as a footstool is this striking piece of imagery from the ancient world. Just think in terms of, let's use, for example, King Nebuchadnezzar when he ruled over Babylon and Persia, what we know today as modern-day Iran. A king, when he would conquer other countries, would require the leaders of those countries to be brought before him into his throne room. 
And if they were out on the battlefield, they would do the exact same thing if they didn't want to take that king back to their native country. But in any case, whether in the battlefield or in his actual throne room, the king would require the conquered king to come before him and to get on his knees before him. And he would lift his right foot and put it upon the neck of his enemy and push his head to the ground, showing that he is the dominant king who has destroyed and put down all of his enemies. And God is saying, you will sit at my power seat at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. It means to subject them utterly. It's an image of triumph. So all of Jesus' enemies are rendered utterly powerless. Where does this imagery come from in the Old Testament? Because he's quoting, again, the Old Testament. Psalms 110.1. It says this, The Lord says to my Lord, God speaking to God, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And we're going to come 360 degrees all the way around to where we started this morning. We had this powerful image of Jesus saying, you're going to see me one day returning in power and glory. Why did that tick the Jews off so badly? The Jews understood that Psalms 110.1 was speaking of the Messiah the one who would be coming at the right hand of God. So when Jesus said this, you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power, it's the culmination of the superiority of Jesus. Literally saying, I'm better than the angels. I'm over everything. I sit at the right hand of God. I am God. For that reason, the high priest ripped his robes and he said, away with him, crucify him. We've heard enough. So what you're seeing this morning is the 360-degree view that this writer of Hebrews has presented evidence this morning for the Jewish people living in the first century who were under persecution, for those of us living today who think that the enemy might be greater than Jesus. The writer of Hebrews is saying, I'm here to tell you, the angels stand before God, but Jesus sits at the power seat of God. Now, not only were the angels created to be servants, their servants of the saved, according to that very last part of verse 14. They were sent out as ministering spirits. You ever felt like you've encountered a guardian angel in your life, or perhaps the children in your life have encountered a guardian angel? Very good chance that if they're believers in Christ, they really have indeed encountered a guardian angel. And I have no problem whatsoever asking for God to put his angels around my children's car or protect my wife as she's going out or protect me. You should do the same because God says he sends these mighty servants, these warriors, these super intelligent beings out as protectors of those who belong to him. Their role is to serve the king of kings, but also those who will inherit salvation. That's you. If you're a believer in Jesus this morning, you're the one who's going to inherit salvation. So I don't know what kind of truth handles you picked up this morning, how you attach some handles to truth that you're going to take out with you. Here's one that just really struck me again this week. He became the son for me, for you. He humbled himself from the second person of the Trinity to become the son for me. That's a truth handle I'm going to take with me because it's just so encouraging. Here's another truth handle. Maybe this is just a reminder for you. He's coming again, church. That's the truth of Scripture. He's coming again. And here's another truth handle. The angels worship Him. Is it enough just to know more about Jesus this morning? I think so. That's what the writer wanted us to know. 
Here's some truth about who He is. Our God is the mighty God. And He has hell under His foot. And He can crush it. (laughs) Pretty good imagery, isn't it? So I would ask ask myself this question. If He can be for you, who could be against you? Yeah, that's the truth of Scripture. We get to celebrate that one who perhaps gave us a new image this morning of himself. We get to do it fully, but I'm going to ask you to stand with me and pray together. Would you do that? Let's stand.